You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Thank you, Honduras team. And thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning. Today's scripture reading is uh, a continuation in the book of Luke. And uh, we are at Luke chapter 20 now. And I will be reading verses 1 through 18 this morning. And you can find that on page 826 of the Chairback Bibles. Luke 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell tell me now, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words and this day, and we gather together and praise you and worship you. Thank you that you've guarded and preserved these words for us over all these years. Your word is truth. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you lead us and guide us and comfort us and give us understanding and speak your word through Chris this morning. You are worthy of all praise, Lord. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen. Thank you, Riley. Good morning, all. I'm Chris Isaacson, one of the elders here at Mill Creek. It's a delight to open the word of God with you today. Thanks so much to the praise and worship team, amazing worship, and thanks to the Honduras team for sharing about what God did through your trip. 
Well, have you ever been frustrated when you thought you were in control of something, but then it became apparent that you were not? Well, we recently purchased a very used car as a school car for one of our kids to use. And as with any car, when you buy it, you need to get it registered at the DMV or the Department of Motor Vehicles. If you've ever been to the DMV, you know that it can be an adventure. If you haven't been to the DMV, such as you're a kid or something, just think of it like the dentist. Everybody has to go, but not many people look forward to it. Well, before I went to the DMV, I did my homework. I figured out everything that I would need to bring. I researched all the documents, so I had the title and the bill of sale, etc. I found the best location in Johnson County for the DMV with the best ratings. I you know, looked at the opening time, then I arrived 30 minutes early and I had the app up on my phone because you actually can't, you can't get a place in line until they open the doors. So I'm pressing, you know, refreshing my browser. I got my spot in line, I waited for 15 or 20 minutes and my numbers called. The time of truth had come, the lady, I'm called to a station, I walk up to the station, the lady's very, very pleasant. And we walk, work through all of the, the paperwork However, as she asked me for the form of payment, I started to hear other DMV workers and other stations whispering about system problems. And after an awkward few more moments and further whispers, the lady helping me confessed, uh, the system's down across the entire state of Kansas. And uh, the Kansas state office doesn't open for 30 minutes. So they won't, they won't start troubleshooting it until then. I thought I had controlled everything to the T. I had all the paperwork. I was there on time. I'd done everything right. And just at the moment the registration was to be issued, defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory. Well, despite my direct questions of this kind lady and my frustration that was visible, nothing was going to change the fact that I just had to wait for the system to come back up or I could come back when it had been restored. I thought I was in control and I was clearly not. I confess I was not happy walking out of the DMV without the desired registration. As we open the text to Luke 20, which Riley read, we find some people, the religious elite in this case, who thought they were in control and that they had authority, but they are extremely angry as it becomes clear that they are not. You see, Jesus had just rode into Jerusalem in chapter 19 that was preached last week on a donkey with a triumphal entry. And he had, he had accepted praise from God from a multitude of people. He also cleansed the temple of the money changers and he set up residence there preaching where the religious elite had held court for years. It was, they thought it was their domain. So the tension between the religious elite and Jesus had elevated to a fever pitch as the moment arrives when it becomes painfully clear to them and to everyone else that they are no longer in control. Jesus has turned their world and their supposed authority structure upside down. And the problem is, we all, like the religious elite in this text, 
want to be in control, to have ultimate authority, to be like God. Well, in our text today, which is actually the entirety of chapter 20 of Luke and the first four verses of chapter 21, the text is going to present us three obvious questions, and then Jesus is going to answer those questions with at least one answer. There'll be a bonus section in the middle that actually has three, three answers. So there's a lot of ground to cover. I promise you we won't be here for an hour and a half, just an hour and 25 minutes. Just kidding. It won't take that long. So there's a lot of ground to cover. Let's, let's dive right in. The first question from the text is what was read, the first 18 verses, who's in charge here anyway? Who's in charge? And the religious elite, they openly challenge Jesus' authority and where it comes from. What's its source? And Jesus responds not with an answer to their question, but with a question of His own. And He confounds them with this question about where does, where did John's, John the Baptist's baptism come from? From heaven? or for man. And the religious elite, they're caught. On the one hand, if they say from heaven, well, then he's going to ask them, why don't you believe? And if they say from man, literally the people, they revered John so much as a prophet that they would kill them. They're caught between, they're caught between their unbelief and their fear. And Jesus, He's a master teacher here. He doesn't play by their rules. I once heard it said, you don't make it a game, you don't make it a rules. And in this case, Jesus is making the rules up of this interaction. And Jesus doesn't explicitly answer their question. But the answer is implied about where His authority comes from. Because John the Baptist, if you look at John 1, you don't need to look there, but in John 1, verse 29, He's Jesus is coming down the road, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist called him God. And Jesus is calling himself God. That's where his authority comes from. And they are, these religious elite are rejecting Jesus just as they reject, rejected John the Baptist. And then Jesus turns to the people in verse 9, and he tells a parable in the hearing of the religious elite. In verse 9, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so the parable goes, there are two more servants, so three servants and all get abused. And then the owner says, well, I'll send my son. And they say, no. We're going we're to kill the son so the inheritance can be ours. A tragic parable. This parable is absolutely rich with symbolism for the original audience, which are Jewish people, because the vineyard throughout the Old Testament was a symbol of the nation of Israel. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, it says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines He delighted in. And the servants that were sent to the tenants are symbols of the prophets that were sent to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament but were rejected. And of course, the son that was sent by the owner is Jesus himself. And the tenants in this parable, they're acting like owners of the vineyard 
when in fact they're just stewards. They're trying to grasp control of something that is not theirs. And their wrong perspective or the wrong attitude leads them to grave sin, ultimately murdering the owner's son. Well, when I was recently driving that used car that I had trouble with the registration on, we did get the registration. I wasn't driving illegally. Um, our daughter voiced her acute frustration with me that I was driving her car. Too much. I challenged her that it was impossible for me to be driving her car because she didn't own a car. I asked her whose name was on the title of the car. You see, the religious elite thought their name was on the title of the vineyard. And that led them to an entitled attitude. You see that in verse 14 with their motive. It says, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Jesus used this parable to expose the religious elite and their ultimate aims. And even the religious elite are shocked by this parable. You see that in verse 16. They say, surely not. They're shocked because it's obvious to even them that the tenants have no right to seize control of the vineyard. This sin is even irrational to them, the religious elite, while they are committing it. Matthew Henry once said, it is the folly of sinners that they persevere in sinful ways, though they dread the destruction at the end of those ways. These religious elite were persisting in their sin although shocked by the result of it. So what does the owner do? Well, there's some pretty harsh language here. The owner crushes the tenants because they fail to give him some of the fruit of his vineyard, because they abuse his servants, and they kill his son. And a bit of an aside here for us, notice the progression of sin. Sin always progresses without confession and without repentance. And they progressed from not giving God what's not giving the owner what's due to then abusing people and ultimately to murder. And that's where sin ends. Sin always ends in destruction if there is no repentance. And then notice in verse 17, which is the most important verse of this first section. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118. And this is so important because historically, the cornerstone was the most important part of any building. And the total weight of the edifice rested on this particular stone, which if it was pulled out, the whole building would fall down. The cornerstone was also the thing that kept the walls straight. Otherwise, it would be crooked and the building would be unstable. Jesus is clearly declaring that He is the cornerstone. And what happens to those who reject the cornerstone? Well, Jesus says two things. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And this is a 
direct fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 8. I won't read it all, but it says, He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And what happens when they fall on the stone? And if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a direct fulfillment from the book of Daniel, chapter 2, where there's a whole bunch of idols and stones set up that are, that are whittled down to chaff and then swept away with the wind. And it says the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Jesus is very clearly declaring His Lordship here. He's fulfilling three prophecies in a very, very short span of a few words. So who's in charge here anyway? Jesus, the cornerstone, is in charge. And that's very clear to the religious elite and to the people of the day. But what does that mean to us today? The application from this section is that we should repent of pride and entitlement. Jesus owns it all. He is above all. In Colossians it says, He is before all, and in Him all things hold together. What we deserve, what we are entitled to, is nothing but hell. Nothing but hell. And so your attitude toward Jesus' authority is everything. Do you recognize that you're not an owner? And in what areas of your life are you acting like an owner when you're just a steward? We live in a country, I'm grateful for our country, where we get to own personal property like cars with titles and homes, and other things. I'm grateful for that. But ultimately, wait, I don't, I don't own that car. I don't own the house. Jesus owns it all. So the first application is re repent of your pride and entitlement. Second is don't reject Jesus, the cornerstone. The religious elite, they were caught between unbelief and the fear of people. Ironically, they should have been fearing God, but they were afraid of people. They were caught between their fear and their unbelief. Are you caught between unbelief and some fear causing you to reject Jesus? Don't let pride keep you from Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, and what you experience from Jesus depends on your response. He says that He will crush the proud who resist and oppose Him. It's very clear. But He will give grace to those who call on His name in faith. Both responses are entirely consistent with His character, with His grace and mercy and justice and holiness. Both flow from His astounding love. So who's in charge here anyway? Jesus, the cornerstone's in charge. Which leads us to our second section, which is in verses 19 through 44. It's a lot of verses. We won't read them all. The second question is, Jesus, what gives you the right anyway? What gives you the right to talk to us like that? 
from the religious elite. In verse 19, you can see the religious elite, they are hopping mad. Think about the most angry person you've ever seen. Red-faced, fist-clenched, they're ready to kill him. In fact, they would take him right now and kill him. The only reason they don't go kill him right now is because they would be killed by the people for killing him. They are furious. So what do they do? They can't be seen as the ones that are challenging Jesus because they're afraid of the people. So they think up a plan to send some spies to try to trap Jesus before the authorities that are in place on the earth. And these spies are supposed to go to him and ask some troubling, a troubling question. But first, these spies that are sent by the scribes and the Pharisees, they seek to butter him up, to flatter Jesus. Teacher, we know that you speak in verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, if this is, flat, this is like the prime example of flattery ever. If they really believed that he truly taught the way of God, they would believe him, but they don't. And then comes the trapping question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar? Now, it's important to understand why is this a really important question to the audience of the day. These were all Jewish people in Israel under Roman rule. And as Charles Ryrie comments, it was imposed by Rome on all the Jewish people. And the question of the day of the Jewish people was, if we pay taxes to Caesar, are we committing idolatry? Because we're bowing to an authority that is, that is not Yahweh, not Jehovah God. And they thought they trapped him. They say, well, if he says, yes, pay, pay taxes to Caesar, then he's saying, he's saying we should commit idolatry. And if he says no, well, then we hand him over to Rome, and Rome gets rid of him. But again, Jesus doesn't answer their question with an answer. He answers their question with a question. He says, show me a denarius. Denarius was a coin in their money system. It was about worth a day's wages of a common laborer. And he says, whose inscription or likeness is on it? Well, Caesar's the king of the land. It's got Caesar's inscription on it. So, of course, it belongs to Caesar. It belongs to the nation of Rome. Jesus says, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There are two obvious commands here. The first command is pay taxes or honor the authorities that are put in place. Very, very consistent with Romans 13, if you want to read it later this afternoon or this evening. But the second and more important command from Jesus' answer is give to God the things that are God's. Because every human being bears the inscription of God. We all bear His image, and therefore, we all belong to Him. See, Jesus leaves them speechless as they're trying to catch Him in His words. But Jesus doesn't want their money. He doesn't want Caesar's coin. He's asking for these people's lives, both religious elite and the people that are listening. He's effectively saying to them, 
I own you. I created you. You bear my image, yet you reject me as God. So Jesus, what gives you the right? Jesus' answer is, I have the right because you bear my image. And this is a fundamental Christian doctrine which we should all know and find comfort in. Imago Dei. Pastor David Robinson preached a sermon here in the last couple years on this doctrine called Imago Dei. It was excellent. And it is simply that God created humans in His image and therefore has authority over all those who bear His image. So Jesus has the right because we all bear His image. So the spies sent by the scribes and the Pharisees, they have epically failed to trap Jesus with their question. So now the Sadducees, a different group, they take a swing at Jesus to see if they can trap Him. And this is in verse, verses 27 through 40. And, of course, they're going to ask Him about something else. In this case, they're going to ask Him about the resurrection, which they don't believe. This, the Sadducee group, they were an aristocratic group <clears throat> who were the most powerful political faction in all of Palestine. They rejected the oral tradition of the law to which the Pharisees adhered, and they also didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, and they relied solely on the Old Testament of Scriptures, especially the first five books of the Bible which were written by Moses. So when they ask Jesus a question, they start with what they believe is the greatest authority, Moses. You can see that in verse 28. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. This comes directly from Deuteronomy 25. This is a practice of Leverite marriage, which is the brother was to take the wife if an bro older brother died uh, to carry on the older brother's line. And so the question goes, there are seven brothers. They all die. They don't have any kids at all. Who's the wife, whose wife is going to be in the resurrection? But Jesus, he says to them in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus rebukes the Sadducees that they're focused on this life and which brother will be the husband to the wife in the resurrection. And since they don't believe the resurrection, they think they've asked an unanswerable question. But they should be focused on the next life and accept the resurrection because He is the God of the living, not the dead. And the next life is not like this one. Humans will not marry and be given in marriage. They will be like angels in this way. Ironically, Jesus is saying to these religious elite, to the Sadducees in this case, 
Listen to Moses. You hold Moses in such high regard. Listen to Moses. He believed in the resurrection. He said that he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So therefore, the, the patriarchs must continue to live. And Jesus' argument is the immortality of the patriarchs is a guarantee of future resurrection. And oh, by the way, the wife in the, in the next age belongs to God, not to any of these husbands. Because earthly marriage on this earth is a shadow, a copy, a type of ultimate marriage, that of Christ and His church. If you read about it in Ephesians 5. Indeed, that age's defining reality is a marriage between the bride, the church, and Christ. So earthly marriage isn't designed to last forever, but to give way to marriage, the marriage of the redeemed to the Lamb. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, Christ is sanctifying His bride, the church, so that she might be presented to Him in the same way husbands should love their wives. So by the Holy Spirit, we who are married are to love each other now to prepare for handing each other over to Christ then. So Jesus, what gives you the right? Jesus answers, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. I resurrect the faithful, therefore I have the right. And in this bonus section where we get three answers to the question of Jesus, what gives you the right, Jesus finishes it with another confounding question, declaring His Lordship. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It starts in verse 41 of chapter 20 of Luke. But He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But David then calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus is saying, I'm not just the son of David, I'm the son of God. And that's why David called me Lord. And he's implying to these religious elite, David calls him Lord, but you reject me. So what, what gives Jesus the right? He's the son of David, and he's the son of God. He has the authority. So that's three answers to one question. But what, what does it mean for us today? What's the application from this longer bonus section? We should acknowledge and adore Jesus for who he says he is. Just in this section, in these 25 verses, He has declared Himself to be Creator God, to be the God of the living, not the dead, to be the Savior who is able to resurrect the dead, to be the Son of David and the Son of God, the Lord of the universe. Let us acknowledge and adore Jesus for who He is, for who He says He is, for the whole book of Luke saying who He is and the entirety of Scriptures, not who we want to make Him out to be. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral guy who looks good with long hair, right? He's the almighty God of the universe. 
we should acknowledge and adore Him for who He is and humbly accept Him as Lord. So we know who's in charge, Jesus the cornerstone, and we know why He has the right. The final question from our text this morning starts in verse 45 of chapter 20 and goes through the first four verses of chapter 21. So what's this going to cost anyway? What's the price? We see this starting in verse 45, and we notice that the audience changes. Up to this point, Jesus has been talking to the religious elite, different groups of the religious elite, and then people who were there also. But Jesus turns to His disciples in the hearing of all the people, and He gives them two things. First, He gives His disciples the gravest of warnings. The greatest warning you could give someone. And he gives it to them, gives it to them about the religious elite, about the scribes who are selfish and prideful and greedy. He uses some incredibly harsh language here. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. To be clear, this is as bad as it gets. This is talking about eternal condemnation and hell. This seems like very, very harsh language from Jesus, which also is consistent with the parable in the first section, which talked about destroying those tenants or being crushed by the cornerstone. This is harsh language. Why so harsh, Jesus? He answers, because these religious elite, they pursue fine robes and greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats at the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, and they devour widows' houses, and they make long prayers for show. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are empty and fallen and broken and dark. Very consistent with what you'll read in Matthew 23, verse 27, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He gives them a grave, grave warning, His disciples a grave warning. Beware of the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are full of pride, and their end is destruction. He also gives His disciples an incredible challenge. We see this starting in chapter 21. At the start, Jesus looked up and He saw the rich putting in their gifts into the offering box, and He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So what's this going to cost anyway? Jesus clearly answers, this will cost you everything. Everything you have. Which is the application from this section and also from this entire text. 
that we are to surrender all to Jesus. Just as the widow put in all she had to live on. Because the gospel, what Jesus is preaching, is not give a little to get. It's not the health and wealth prosperity gospel that if you come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, all your problems will go away, and you'll live happily ever after. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's asking for complete surrender. All of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure. But what does surrender mean? If you've been around church, or maybe not, but you hear the word surrender, it can be a little ethereal, it can be a, not very tangible. It was very tangible to this widow who put in all she had to live on, but is Jesus asking us to give away all of our money right now and go live with nothing? He, he might be asking you to do that, but I, I think there's probably some deeper introspection that's required to apply this text. It can be as simple as starting with a prayer, such as, Lord, show me anything I am seeking before you. Show me anything that's on the throne of my heart instead of you, and help me surrender it completely to you. You know, John Calvin once said that our hearts are like idle factories. And Brad Bigney, who will be here this fall to teach, defines an idol as anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God, more than Jesus. So what happens with idolatry is, when we put something on the throne of our heart instead of Jesus, is we sin. As John Piper said, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God, when He's not enough, when we think He's not enough. And you know what? The idol that you're struggling with, I don't know what it is. God knows, and you know, and He can reveal it to you. I'm just going to give some examples, but they could go on all day because our hearts are like idol factories. That's part of the result of the fall. They can be very tangible or intangible. They can be possessions that we have, or they can be intangible like relationships with people, spouses, kids, friends, family. It can be money, as was referenced in this text, or sports teams, or grades, or a job, or control, or comfort, or the approval of people, or power, or always needing to win, or it might be addiction to a substance, or to sex, or to pornography, or it may be your appearance that you must look a certain way to other people or a hobby that you've completely thrown yourself into at the expense of what is better. Or you may need to surrender your own self-righteousness. Like the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son, and like these religious elite were unwilling to do. Their idol was themselves and their own self-righteousness. 
But this is very personal for me. Because I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. My parents loved the Lord. But I didn't understand grace until I was an adult. And I thought I was better because I kept a bunch of rules. And I wasn't. And I'm not. And you're not. We are not self-righteous. Our only righteousness comes from Christ. We bring nothing to Jesus to earn His love. He has done it all. So we can surrender all. We can trust Him with that. But this makes no sense. This makes zero sense if Jesus is just a good teacher. If he's just a good moral guy, one of those good moral teachers of, of history, why would you surrender your life to somebody if that's all that they are? But if he is the Savior and Lord and the Creator and the Redeemer and the Resurrector, if he is the God of the universe, well, then this makes all the sense in the world. This is the most rational thing you could do with your entire life is to surrender to Him. And sin is the most irrational thing that you can do. Which brings us to our sermon in a sentence. Jesus rejects the proud who reject His authority, but gives grace to the humble who surrender all to Him. Jesus rejects the proud who reject His authority, but gives grace to the humble who surrender all to Him. So what does your lifestyle and your attitude toward Jesus' authority say? Have you repented of pride and entitlement? Are you rejecting or accepting the cornerstone? Have you acknowledged and adored Jesus for who He is? and accepted Him as Lord? And have you surrendered all to Him? So what's your experience, like mine at the DMV, that exposed that you're not in control, that you don't have authority? Well, unlike at the DMV, where I had no idea when the system would be restored, and when I get the vehicle registered, we know who has the ultimate authority and can fix our biggest problem, which is our sin and our need for forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, we have a systemic problem. Just like Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden with the authority to be like God. If you look it up in Genesis 3, verse 4, what does Satan, the serpent, say to Adam and Eve? He says, and you will be like God. This is the original temptation. And you know what? We are tempted, and we have sinned like Adam and Eve because we want to be in control. And this sin is incurable without God, without Jesus. He has the authority and the willingness to forgive sins, 
to save, to resurrect those who accept Him, but He will clearly reject those who reject His authority as the religious elite did. Will you surrender all to Him and His authority? Will you surrender your idols that are in your life where you're trying to hang on to control? You don't have the right and title to your life. Jesus does. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Surrender all to Him today. Let's pray. Lord, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you when we deserve nothing but hell. Jesus, thanks for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, I pray that there are some here who have never surrendered their life to you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And for the brothers and sisters in Christ who are here, where they're, if they're hanging on to a sin or an idol, that they would surrender that to you today and grow in maturity in Christ. You are worthy. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.